The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. Bribery is an impeachable offense. Welcome to an updated edition of my weekly report for Thursday, November 21st, 2019. Thank you for listening to this independent news, which appreciates your support through the donate button at buzzburbank.com. The headline here last week was Abusing Power for Personal Gain. Later that day, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi floated bribery as a possible article of impeachment. A president doesn't have to commit a crime to be impeached. The Constitution gives Congress a lot of leeway. But of all the high crimes and misdemeanors the Founding Fathers could imagine, they only specifically mentioned two, treason and bribery. And with that, the House Intelligence Committee's impeachment inquiry hearings and the Republican opposition to them kicked into an even higher gear this week. This time last week, we were talking about the convincing testimony of Ambassador Bill Taylor, a Bronze Star Vietnam veteran serving presidents of both parties for decades. He told us Trump holding up security aid to Ukraine, quote, for no good national security reason is wrong. He talked about Trump and his cronies' attacks on Marie Ivanovich and other dedicated public servants, calling it most unfortunate to watch. And Taylor told us he had just learned that one of his aides overheard a loud cell phone call between Trump and Gordon Sondland, in which Trump asked about the investigations and that Sondland had answered that Ukraine's president would do, quote, whatever you want. First I've heard of it, said Trump to reporters, quote, I know nothing about that. Later that day, Republican senators at a closed-door luncheon kicked around the idea of stretching the impeachment trial through January to mess with the Democratic senators who hoped to be on the campaign trail in the run-up to the primaries. It was the next morning that Nancy Pelosi would utter the word bribery, a concept more easily understood than the vague Latin phrase quid pro quo. Everybody knows what bribery is. It's a reward to induce someone to do something they might not otherwise do. With bribery so specifically mentioned in our Constitution, can a president use taxpayer money to dangle a reward to a foreign country to, say, investigate his political rivals? It'll soon come time for the House to make the Trump protective Senate an offer it cannot refuse, a compelling case that the president did commit bribery, a high crime that worried the founding fathers as much as treason. A standing ovation, complete with cheering, marked the end of a long day for former U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Yovanovitch. Like Bill Taylor, Yovanovitch served for decades under presidents of both parties and was told, when she was removed from her post, that she hadn't done anything wrong. It sounded like a threat, she swore under oath, when she was asked what she thought when she read the White House notes on Trump's call to Zelensky, in which Trump asked for a favor after being asked about military aid. Quote, I didn't know what to think. I was very concerned. It didn't sound good. It sounded like a threat. I was shocked and devastated, frankly. I even had a physical reaction. In that call, Trump called Ambassador Yovanovitch bad news and told Zelensky she was going to, quote, go through some things. That sounded like a threat to Yovanovitch. It's very intimidating, she testified. Yovanovitch had reason for concern. She testified she got the word she was out as ambassador and that she should board the next flight to the U.S. for security reasons. And she got that advice while she was at a ceremony honoring a Ukrainian anti-corruption activist who'd been attacked in front of her house with sulfuric acid last July and died a long, miserable death. And right after Yovanovitch made her remarks, a president glued to the TV like millions of other Americans tweeted yet another attack on Yovanovitch, saying, quote, everywhere Marie Yovanovitch went turned bad. In real time, in the midst of a hearing that's also investigating obstruction of justice by Trump, he intimidates the witness who's testifying as she's testifying about what she took as a threat. The Democrats were quick to introduce that tweet into their growing stack of evidence and to warn the president in real time, since he was watching, that there were some on the committee who take witness intimidation, quote, very, very seriously. I have the right to speak, Trump told reporters later. I have freedom of speech just as other people do, he said. Indeed, he does. But in those tweeted attacks on a testifying witness, he was trying to obstruct an investigation of him and he had just provided more evidence of that charge. 
while Trump refuses to cooperate with the investigation and refuses to allow his people to cooperate, he couldn't help but make himself heard even at his own legal peril. Not even Republicans thought the tweet was a good idea. In real time, in response to that tweet, Yovanovitch testified that it too was, quote, very intimidating. Sunday morning, Nancy Pelosi had said on TV that if the president is so eager to be heard in these hearings, he's invited to appear to answer questions or if he prefers to answer their questions in writing. Monday, Trump said he liked the idea and was strongly considering it. His allies in Congress argued against it, saying it's beneath the dignity of a president. And normally, that would be true. Democrats were skeptical, one saying, I'm not holding my breath, tweeted another, I'm sure we can expect your testimony, along with your plan to cover pre-existing conditions, your gun violence legislation, and your tax returns, all of which you promised would be coming soon. Ms. Yovanovitch also testified that the smear campaign aimed at removing her as our ambassador to Ukraine, orchestrated by Trump and Rudy Giuliani, quote, hijacked our Ukraine policy. She talked about how Trump, Donald Trump Jr., and Fox News executed these smears and that the Fox News report that she had badmouthed Trump is false. She said she had been smeared and removed because of, quote, corrupt interests. It's bizarre, said Yovanovitch, for a president to ask that some American be investigated by another government. Republicans were all over the road in that hearing, complaining about the process, demanding to see the whistleblower, floating discredited conspiracy theories, accusing Democrats of a Watergate fantasy, and saying that the treatment of Marie Yovanovitch was, quote, more appropriate for the subcommittee on human resources over at the House Foreign Affairs Committee, a mere personnel matter. They tried to claim that our ex-ambassador to Ukraine was irrelevant to the investigation, even though Trump specifically badmouthed her in his infamous July 25th call to Volodymyr Zelensky. Yovanovitch shot down the wild Republican theories one by one, making it clear that it was definitely, undeniably Russia that interfered in the 2016 campaigns, not Ukraine, as Trump and many Republicans claim. At the end of that very long day, a new hero had emerged, complete with a standing ovation and an audience of millions upon millions of people. Trump supporters tweeted comments including, I hired Donald Trump to fire people like Yovanovitch. But on the Fox News channel, senior commentator Chris Wallace told viewers, if you are not moved by the testimony of Marie Yovanovitch, you don't have a pulse. And that was just the daytime hearing, made available for public viewing on TV in all its forms. Another hearing followed that evening, and we'll get to that straight away. But it was also during the Yovanovitch testimony that the White House released its notes on another phone call between Trump and Zelensky. The White House may come to regret releasing that set of notes, too. According to those White House notes, this was a nice call, with nothing untoward, assuming the notes are complete. In this transcript, we learned that Volodymyr Zelensky very, very much wanted Trump to personally attend his inauguration as Ukraine's new president. Trump responded he'd send Vice President Pence or somebody. A great representative were his exact words. In the end, it was Energy Secretary Rick Perry, whose political donors have just landed a 50-year oil and gas deal in Ukraine, who made that trip to the inauguration. But the glaring problem with this new set of call notes is the way it conflicts with the White House readout of that call. A readout is a brief summary of a call between a U.S. president and another world leader that's issued after the conversation. In this case, the readout, which we now know was written before the call was made, says Trump talked about helping Ukraine root out corruption. But the rough transcript of that same call makes absolutely no mention of corruption. The White House blamed the discrepancy on the National Security Council's top expert on Ukraine, Lieutenant Colonel Alex Vindman, who is not responsible for the final update to the readout, which was based on talking points the president did not follow. Colonel Vindman would get a chance to explain his actions under oath five days later. He testified publicly on Tuesday of this week in some of the most powerful testimony we've heard. The only positive thing Trump said about Ukraine in that super nice April congratulatory call to Zelensky was, quote, when I owned Miss Universe, they always had great people. Ukraine was very well represented. Trump was apparently hoping this nice call from April might draw attention away from the more damning call in late July, especially being released at the start of a day of damning public testimony. But 
It's that more well-known transcript that Democrats consider their most incriminating piece of evidence in the impeachment of Donald Trump for bribery. Again, this much-anticipated set of call notes from April was dropped by the White House just as Marie Yovanovitch was beginning her testimony. About six hours later came another long hearing behind closed doors that would run nearly till bedtime on the East Coast, the testimony of the man who'd overheard that loud phone call between Trump and Gordon Sondland. David Holmes is a diplomat from our embassy in Ukraine. After a July 26th meeting between Ukrainian officials and Gordon Sondland, this first-hand witness testified he clearly heard Trump ask Sondland, so he's going to do the investigations? Quoting from David Holmes' sworn testimony, Ambassador Sondland replied, he's going to do it. I remember it vividly, said Holmes. Holmes testified behind closed doors he'd never seen anything like the remarkable call he'd witnessed. And Holmes was equally appalled that a call with the president would be conducted in such an unsecured location as a restaurant in Kiev where Russians own all four cell providers. Holmes says Trump was talking very loudly, so loudly Sondland held the phone away from his ear, making it even easier for others to hear what the president was saying. It was in that meeting Holmes says he learned that Ukraine's president had agreed to do a CNN interview announcing the investigations to get that much-needed military aid, and David Holmes testified that concerned him. Holmes says Sondland told Trump Ukraine's president, quote, loves your ass and would, quote, do anything you ask him to. Diplomat David Holmes testified that after the call, Sondland told him Trump doesn't give a shit about Ukraine, just the, quote, big stuff, like whether Ukraine investigates Joe Biden, as Giuliani had been pushing for. And Holmes repeated all that again today, but this time in a public hearing. Meanwhile, Ambassador Sondland, who gave a million bucks to the Trump inauguration in 2016 and landed his gig with no diplomatic experience, would have much to answer for when it came his turn to testify publicly this week. And in Sondland's blockbuster public testimony yesterday, he said the president was aware that he was talking on an unsecured phone. Big as that was, that wasn't the blockbuster. So what was? Sondland said there was a quid pro quo, and quote, everybody knew it. He brought along memos, emails, and other documents to back up his claim. Quoting Sondland, Giuliani's requests were a quid pro quo for arranging a White House visit for President Zelensky. And Sondland directly pointed to White House Acting Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, and Vice President Mike Pence. Sondland says he told Pence on September 1st that he believed military aid for Ukraine would be held back until Zelensky announced an investigation into Hunter Biden and supposed Ukrainian interference in the 2016 election. Sondland says he could have brought more documents to Congress had those documents not been blocked by Mike Pompeo's State Department. And he said he and all the others were taking their orders from the president, directly from the president, and that, quote, everybody was in the loop from Mulvaney to Pompeo to Rick Perry. Sondland stopped just short of implicating both President Trump and Vice President Pence. Sondland says the guidance he and Rick Perry and Kurt Volker got from the president on Ukraine policy was, quote, talk to Rudy. Sondland says Giuliani told him Zelensky would have to publicly announce an investigation into 2016 Democrats and Burisma, which is the natural gas company that employed Joe Biden's son, Hunter. Despite the corruption of Burisma, there is still no evidence of wrongdoing by either of the Bidens. In his jaw-dropping testimony yesterday, Gordon Sondland said that if he'd known about Giuliani's associates and dealings, he would not have cooperated with the pressure campaign on Ukraine. Sondland says he was not happy with the involvement of Giuliani and his associates and said he did not know they were engaged in improper behavior at the time. He testified he was adamantly opposed to the suspension of aid for Ukraine, and he says he never got a clear answer as to why it was being withheld. Over time, Sondland says it became clear there was a quid pro quo involving aid and investigations of the Bidens and the 2016 Democrats. We followed the president's orders, said Sondland. We followed the president's orders. Also testifying yesterday, Pentagon Ukraine expert Laura Cooper, who shot down one Republican defense of Trump that the Ukrainians couldn't have felt pressured if they didn't know their military aid was being withheld. In her public testimony, Cooper brought forward new evidence, emails her staff received from Ukraine asking about the money 
on the same day that Trump called Zelensky to make his request about Joe Biden and the 2016 Democrats, as outlined in the White House notes on that call. She testified it was Russia that would most benefit from the withholding of U.S. aid to Ukraine and that withholding it without congressional approval was, in her understanding, illegal. And she says the Ukrainians knew the aid was being withheld. Joining Laura Cooper yesterday evening for public testimony was the third highest ranking individual in the State Department, Deputy Undersecretary David Hale. Hale testified he was wrong of Trump to attack former Ambassador Yovanovitch and that the smear campaign against her and her firing were wrong. Today we heard from what may be the final two witnesses in the public testimony phase of this impeachment inquiry. Dr. Fiona Hill, the former Russia expert for the National Security Council, she has quoted former National Security Advisor John Bolton of accusing Sondland and Giuliani of cooking up a drug deal and instructing her to report what the two of them had just witnessed in a meeting with Sondland and Ukrainian officials to report it to the White House attorney. In that meeting, Sondland told the Ukrainians the president would need the deliverables in order for Ukraine to get their aid. With the closed-door testimony of the State Department's David Holmes, who testified publicly today, Sondland's testimony, even with its post-testimony revisions, was falling apart. From that moment on Saturday evening when the transcript of Holmes' closed-door testimony was released, Gordon Sondland knew he had Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday to get his story straight before testifying again on Wednesday, three days to choose between continuing his loyalty to Trump or to avoid going to prison for lying to Congress, as it became clear Roger Stone will do when Stone was convicted on a half dozen counts of lying to Congress this week, along with one count of witness intimidation. It was David Holmes who overheard that loud phone call in a Ukrainian restaurant between Ambassador Sondland and Donald Trump. And he will talk about that in his public testimony today. There's one other impossible-to-ignore note about Sondland's loud cell phone call with Trump. That others could hear it so clearly indicates the restaurant was quiet enough to allow that and that others in the restaurant might have heard at least parts of that conversation as well. But multiple former counterintelligence officials say it's highly likely that intelligence operatives from other countries were monitoring that call. A former CIA officer told CNN the call between Sondland and Trump is an egregious violation of traditional counterintelligence practices that all national security officials, to include political appointee ambassadors such as Sondland, are repeatedly made aware of. He goes on, I cannot remember in my career any time where an ambassador in a high counterintelligence environment like Kiev would have such an insecure conversation with a sitting president. This should just not happen. The State Department has not commented on whether Sondland's phone was outfitted with any kind of enhanced security. Another former Intel official told CNN cell phones are even more vulnerable than non-secured landlines. A former FBI man says he was told nine years ago to, quote, expect all your calls to be monitored in Kiev. Dr. Fiona Hill of the National Security Council testified behind closed doors last month that she had tried to get Sondland to stop using his personal cell phone for work. She called the use of that phone deeply disturbing. Again, Dr. Hill testifying publicly today. A coal miner's daughter from northern England, tough as nails since the age of 11, apparently, Fiona Hill was one of two powerful closing witnesses today. The former Russia expert from the National Security Council came out swinging against claims by Trump and many Republicans that Russian interference in the 2016 election was a hoax. She scolded Republicans on the committee for promoting what she called the fictional narrative of Ukrainian interference. It was Russia, she said clearly, and that time is running out to keep Russia from mucking up our 2020 presidential election. She explained that the Ukraine theory comes from Russian intelligence, propaganda to divide American voters. She asked Republicans to stop pursuing these falsehoods. It was Russia, she said, adding, it is beyond dispute. And Hill testified that Ambassador Sondland, who told her he'd been put in charge of Ukraine policy by Trump, was being used for a domestic political errand separate from U.S. policy goals. She told lawmakers that John Bolton had referred to the Trump administration scheme as a drug deal, Bolton calling it investigations for a meeting. Hill said she was shocked and saddened by Trump's July 25th call with Zelensky. 
She called it a subversion of foreign policy for political interests. A bit surprising that Hill's co-witness, David Holmes, of our embassy in Ukraine, was every bit as crucial a witness as Dr. Hill. Holmes, who overheard that loud call to Trump, agreed with Hill that it appeared Trump had withheld aid for investigations, including one of the Burisma gas company, and that Burisma was really code for Biden. Holmes outlined two specific quid pro quos, that Trump was withholding aid for the investigations he wanted from Ukraine and that he withheld a crucial White House meeting for Zelensky to get those investigations. Holmes said he was shocked by the demand for Ukraine's president to commit to a TV interview announcing an investigation of the Bidens and the 2016 Democrats. But it was Dr. Hill's words that carried the most gravity, quoting her, If the president or anyone else impedes or subverts the national security of the United States to further domestic or political interests, that, she told lawmakers, is more than worthy of your attention. In the Republicans' turn at questioning, they didn't question. They lectured the witnesses or addressed the TV audience, but apparently gobsmacked by the powerful testimony and overwhelming evidence, they turned to mentions of the Steele dossier, the Russian hoax, supposed hearsay, and the supposed unfairness of the hearings. Trump's defense, besides tweeting angrily about the witnesses, including shouting at reporters in front of the White House as he read the words Gordon Sondland had testified to about a conversation with Trump. I want nothing. I want nothing. I want no quid pro quo, Trump read from a note card written in big block letters by Trump's former communications director, Hope Hicks. He had, in fact, said those words to Sondland, but... He said them after the whistleblower's complaint, after the notes from his call with Zelensky had gone public, after he had gotten caught. The House Intelligence Committee now hands off the impeachment inquiry to the Judiciary Committee, which has the power to recommend impeachment to the full House. There will likely be more witnesses. It became sorely apparent after this week's testimony, especially today's. The nation needs to hear from former National Security Advisor John Bolton. Nancy Pelosi said today that one witness may lead to testimony by another and that the hearing should continue because, quote, Republicans are in denial about the facts. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell told reporters, the action is all over in the House. We'll be ready if it comes over here. McConnell wouldn't say whether he's watched the hearings or whether he's spoken to Trump. Republican senators huddled privately this afternoon to work on a strategy for the inevitable impeachment trial. There was talk of dragging it out until they appeared to have settled on a trial to last about two weeks. In that meeting from the Senate, Utah's Mike Lee, Wisconsin's Ron Johnson, Arkansas's Tom Cotton, South Carolina's Lindsey Graham, and Ted Cruz of Texas. From the White House in that meeting, White House Counsel Pat Cibolone, Acting Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney, Son-in-Law Jared Kushner, and Kellyanne Conway. Trump is said to be miserable and eager to get past this, if he can. But the plans of Senate Republicans are not yet set in stone. Stay tuned. This week, there was more testimony, every bit as stirring as the testimony of Marie Ivanovich. On Tuesday of this week, decorated Army Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman told lawmakers, I am grateful for my father's brave act of hope 40 years ago and for the privilege of being an American citizen and public servant where I can live free of fear for mine and my family's safety. The Purple Heart veteran in his Army dress blues continued, Dad, my sitting here today in the U.S. Capitol talking to our elected officials is proof you made the right decision to leave the Soviet Union and come here to the United States of America in search for a better life for our family, adding, Do not worry. I will be fine for telling the truth. When asked why he had put himself in direct opposition to the president, to the most powerful man in the free world, Vindman replied, because this is America. Here, he said, right matters. Vindman, the leading Ukraine expert on the National Security Council, testified the president's July 25th call to Ukraine's president asking for an investigation of an American citizen and political opponent, Joe Biden, was improper because it could have significant national security implications for the U.S., 
The colonel told lawmakers he'd been aware of a false narrative, unfounded Republican conspiracy theories about the Bidens and supposed Ukrainian interference in the 2016 election. Without hesitation, I knew I had to report this. I had concerns, and it was my duty to report to the people in the proper chain of command. It was improper for the president to demand an investigation into a political opponent, especially a foreign power, end quote. Colonel Vindman's family is now under 24-hour security monitoring by the Army after becoming the target of Trump supporter hatred on Twitter. The Army now says it will move Vindman's family to a safe location if necessary. Small wonder the Vindmans are the target of threats. Republicans tried repeatedly Tuesday to call into question the judgment of the colonel and tried to minimize both Vindman and his testimony, at one point calling him Mr. Vindman instead of addressing the uniformed officer as lieutenant colonel. They even called him out for wearing his dress uniform to testify. Republicans tried to paint Vindman as a man dually loyal to Ukraine. When asked if he was a never-Trumper, Vindman replied, no, he's a never-partisan. Republicans also tried repeatedly to get this week's witnesses to out the whistleblower only to be shut down by committee chairman Adam Schiff and or lawyers for the witness. Mark Sandy is another bipartisan career employee at the Office of Management and Budget run by Trump's acting chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, serving presidents of both parties for decades. Mark Sandy marched up the hill on Saturday to testify behind closed doors, defying the White House order that he not testify. Everyone in the administration has been ordered not to testify, a fact to be coupled with witness tampering in the impeachment article on obstruction. Three others in the OMB are refusing to comply with their subpoenas, but Mark Sandy felt a civic duty to obey his subpoena, so he defied the White House order. It was Mark Sandy who signed the papers that withheld the money from Ukraine, and he signed them on July 25th, the same day as Trump's do-us-a-favor phone call with Zelensky. Democrats hoped Mr. Sandy could tell us specifically who ordered the withholding of aid to Ukraine and perhaps specifically why. The transcript of his testimony was quickly made public. In his testimony, Mark Sandy says he was never told why, but that he thought the freeze on funding was, quote, highly irregular. Sandy's boss is Trump political appointee Michael Duffy. Sandy says Duffy got involved, claiming to want to learn more about the budget apportionment process Mr. Sandy told Duffy there were better ways to do that, but he says Duffy insisted. Duffy, of course, is one of the OMB officials refusing to obey their subpoenas. We got the transcript of Sandy's testimony Saturday evening, the same day it was given. And we got transcripts from two other previous closed-door witness depositions. First, there was the testimony of Jennifer Williams and aide to Vice President Mike Pence, and she was on the line taking notes when Trump called Zelensky about that favor. She told House investigators that Trump's push for Ukraine to open investigations was, quote, unusual and inappropriate. Unusual, said Williams, because it was political in nature, tied to Trump's, quote, personal political agenda over a broader foreign policy objective of the United States. The day after the Williams transcript was released, offering no evidence to support this, Trump attacked her as being a never-Trumper, even though one White House official has called her the most professional person in this building, Jennifer Williams. Trump says he doesn't know her, and as with other witnesses, called her a never-Trumper. The president continued attacking the people of his own White House, Republicans, in some cases people he had appointed. The office of the vice president in which Williams works has said nothing in her defense, only that she is a State Department employee. She testified publicly on Tuesday of this week, calling Trump's call to Zelensky unusual because it involved discussion of, quote, what appeared to be a domestic political matter. Also Saturday night, we got another transcript from last week's closed-door hearings. Tim Morrison is the top National Security Council advisor on Russia and Europe. In his testimony, Morrison recalled conversations with Gordon Sondland in which Sondland told him Trump wanted Zelensky to announce investigations that would help Trump politically. Morrison says Sondland told him that Zelensky must publicly announce the opening of the investigations and that, quote, he should want to do it. 
Morrison says he told Sondland this kind of talk made him uncomfortable, and Morrison reported his concerns about two such conversations to the lawyers at the National Security Council. He expressed his concern to then-National Security Advisor John Bolton. Morrison testified Sondland was the one truly in charge of Ukraine on behalf of the president and that Sondland spoke with Trump by phone about a half dozen times over the two months leading up to the money's release. About Sondland, Morrison testified his mandate from the president was to go make deals. Morrison says he was warned by others on the National Security Council about the Gordon problem, referring to Ambassador Gordon Sondland. Morrison says that according to a briefing he had received, Trump freed the money held back from Ukraine after a meeting in which Ohio Republican Senator Rob Portman and Vice President Pence strongly urged him to do so. Morrison also testified the White House notes on that July 25th call were placed in a super-secret server by mistake. But he says it was he who recommended keeping the notes out of the public eye because he says he worried that the conspiracy theories Trump spouted during that call about the Bidens and the 2016 election would be damaging. He says he did not recommend that the call notes be placed into a White House server that is normally reserved for the nation's most sensitive secrets. But Morrison says he heard nothing else improper in that call, unconcerned that it might constitute impeachable bribery, despite also testifying Sondland's talk of a this-for-that making him uncomfortable. Morrison also testified publicly on Tuesday of this week, telling Congress, I feared at the time of the call on July 25th how its disclosure would play in Washington's political climate, adding, My fears have been realized. Also in Tuesday's televised impeachment inquiry hearing, we heard from former special envoy to Ukraine, Kurt Volker, who said he found the president's reference to Joe Biden on the July 25th call unacceptable. Volker has known Biden for 25 years and told Republican lawmakers keen on connecting Biden to that unsubstantiated scandal that Biden is an honorable man. Volker says he didn't know the president was specifically seeking dirt on Biden. Otherwise, he says he too would have objected. Volker was amending his previous testimony, clarifying inconsistencies in his earlier testimony, admitting that he now understands that references to the Ukraine natural gas company Burisma were in fact references to Joe Biden's son who served on the board of that company. Volker says he learned of the connection by Googling Burisma. He called the allegations of Biden corruption inappropriate and a conspiracy theory. One of the four witnesses on Tuesday, Volker was the only one who wasn't on the line during Trump's infamous phone call. Both Volker and Morrison had been called to testify by the Republicans on the House Intelligence Committee. Although the whistleblower's claims have proved to be overwhelmingly true, it's important to remember that without the complaint he or she filed through proper channels, there wouldn't be an impeachment. It started when that CIA analyst finished his or her report and hit send on August 12th. It began. In the course of my official duties, I have received information from multiple U.S. government officials that the president is using the power of his office to solicit interference from a foreign country in the 2020 U.S. election. And that's what this impeachment is all about. That official complaint outlines interviews with dozens of officials in our government and in Ukraine's. And that whistleblower complaint quickly became the focus of a House investigation that quickly morphed into an impeachment inquiry after the White House released its transcript of that July phone call. Using the power of his office to solicit interference from a foreign country in the 2020 election, the very words of the whistleblower remain at the heart of this impeachment. The CIA is doing everything it can to continue to protect the identity of that whistleblower so that others can feel free to report wrongdoing in the future in our continuing struggle for clean government. Meanwhile, back in Ukraine, 13,000 people have died and the death toll climbs weekly. Some of the casualties in Ukraine's war against invading Russians died while Trump was holding up military aid to a vital ally for his personal political gain. And just as Syrian Kurds were left to die at the hands of Russians, so too were the Ukrainians. In the same way Trump was backing out of Syria to make way from Russia, he was doing the same in Ukraine. Almost immediately, the Kurds in Syria made a deal with Russia, and now Ukraine's president is discussing a deal with Moscow as well. 
Volodymyr Zelensky was, after all, elected as Ukraine's president as a peace candidate. Both in Syria and Ukraine, the U.S. is receding and Russia is surging. This pleases Vladimir Putin, just like Trump's support of Brexit, his pressure against NATO, and his defense of Russia when it comes to findings of Russian interference in the 2016 election. Quoting Putin, just yesterday, Thank God no one is accusing us of interfering in U.S. elections anymore. Now they're accusing Ukraine, end quote. Up until recently, the U.S. would call for stability in Ukraine. Desperate for help against Russia, Ukraine is now calling for stability in the U.S. Seven out of ten Americans think Trump was wrong to urge Ukraine to investigate a political rival. That from a new ABC News Ipsos poll that also shows 51% of us think that Trump should be both impeached and removed from office. 58% of us are following the hearings more or less. 21% of it are watching closely. 13 million people watched last week's hearings. The survey found that one in four of us think Trump did nothing wrong in asking a foreign country for help against a political rival. That's one in four. Likewise, about one in four of us are ignoring the hearings entirely. But of those watching... Over two-thirds think he should be impeached and removed from office. And at least one noteworthy Republican may be having his own doubts about the president, although it hasn't shown during the hearings. Ohio Congressman Mike Turner has been a fierce Trump defender, and he's a member of one of the House committees involved in the impeachment inquiry. On TV Sunday, though, Turner said, quote, This is not okay. The president of the United States shouldn't be on the phone with the president of another country and raise his political opponent. No, said Turner, this is not okay. Still, Turner's questioning in the hearings has been fiercely in defense of the president. In the hearings, one Republican defense of Trump includes the fact that Volodymyr Zelensky had said he felt no pressure to open an investigation. That's true. And that makes sense that he would say that, since Zelensky wouldn't want to do anything that would again cost him that much-needed U.S. military aid. What would you do in that situation? But State Department officials in both Kiev and Washington say they were briefed three times that Zelensky was feeling that pressure to launch an investigation for Trump to get that defense money. Those briefings predate that July 25th phone call, indicating Zelensky knew exactly what Trump meant when he spoke of investigating the Bidens, especially since Trump's request immediately followed Zelensky's request for military help. And documents from the State Department officials show that Zelensky knew before the call Shooting down Republican claims, Zelensky felt no pressure and knew nothing about Trump's demands until the day of that infamous call. State Department officials and documents, the ones that have been released anyway, say otherwise. Not surprisingly, Trump has said at least eight untrue things about that phone call. CNN has documented that and all the other falsehoods that Trump spouted about Ukraine and impeachment specifically. Trump called the transcript of that call an exact transcript. It's not. He said he didn't ask Zelensky for anything. He did. He says Zelensky brought up the name Marie Ivanovich. No, the call summary says it was Trump. The list goes on. CNN also found falsehoods by Trump eight times on the subject of House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff, eight about the impeachment process, eight lies about the Bidens, six about the whistleblower, five about his dealings with Ukraine, and two about the public opinion polls. For a total of 45 times, Trump has been dishonest in the past two weeks just about Ukraine and impeachment. Although the Washington Post reports monthly on the number of untrue utterances from the president, there is not yet a count of the number of false things he may have said about the Russia investigation. But there's another way to look at that, one that House impeachment inquisitors are about to pursue. On Monday of this week, we learned that House Democrats are now investigating whether Trump lied to special counsel Robert Mueller in his written answers that Trump and his lawyers provided in that Russia investigation. A lawyer for the House told the D.C. appeals court that, for answers, Lawmakers need to see that sealed grand jury material from the Mueller probe. The House lawyer told the judges it's urgent. The judge didn't see it that way and put off a decision until early January. And that brings us back to Roger Stone, the self-proclaimed dirty trickster who's had a political relationship with Donald Trump longer than anyone. 
He's been convicted of lying to Congress about his efforts to get Democratic emails that had been hacked and stolen by Russia in 2016. With no collusion as his main defense, the jury found Stone guilty on all seven federal felonies, including witness intimidation. Stone had been indicted by special counsel Robert Mueller, who outlined in his report important details about the Trump campaign's lust for the emails that Russia had stolen from Democrats. The president's longtime confidant, Roger Stone, will likely be ordered to prison when he returns to court on February 6th. Stone joins other convicts from Trump world. He joins Trump campaign manager Paul Manafort, deputy campaign manager Rick Gates, former Trump national security advisor Mike Flynn, former foreign policy advisor George Papadopoulos, and Trump's former personal lawyer Michael Cohen. What about crooked Hillary? Trump tweeted, inquiring also about Comey, Strzok, Page, McCabe, Brennan, Clapper, Schiff, Steele, and Mueller. Didn't they lie? He tweeted, huffing that it was, quote, a double standard like we've never seen before in the history of our country. Facts, the truth, and the news media have also been under fire again this week. Ranking Republican Devin Nunes of the House Intelligence Committee opened Tuesday's hearing with a vicious and relentless attack on our free press. Nunes blamed the media for the idea that Trump's 2016 campaign colluded with Russians, even though that investigation was launched actually by the United States Department of Justice, not the media. Nunes accused the media of stirring up controversy about Ukraine when, in fact, the damning evidence has come from inside the White House, from inside the Trump administration. Nunes urged Americans to ignore the media at a time in our history that's filled with alternate facts. What Nunes did not do was defend the president's actions. And that's a fact. The Trump administration also appears to be ready to punish its own people who have testified against the president. CNN reports Trump aides are talking about moving some of the White House witnesses back to the agencies from whence they came. At the top of that list, the Pentagon's Lieutenant Colonel Alex Vindman and State Department Ambassadors Bill Taylor and George Kent. The administration had already fired Marie Ivanovich and others. NBC News reports that Trump has now turned some of his anger toward his most loyal ally in the cabinet, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, blaming Pompeo for keeping on all these State Department officials who are now willingly testifying against Trump. But Trump has been warned by his staff that firing any more people right now will make him look guilty and give Democrats another item for their list of impeachable offenses. A lot of Americans don't mind anything Trump's done regarding Ukraine. But Salon.com's Bob Seska does. Right, Bob? Thank you, Buzz. Shortly after Gordon Sondland's testimony began, far-right media activist Brent Bozell tweeted this, quote, Listen to Sondland and you'll understand why America elected Donald Trump president to get rid of people like Sondland, unquote. No, you're not insane, but Brent Bozell certainly is. We all know that Sondland was handpicked by Trump to be America's ambassador to the EU after Sondland donated $1 million to Trump's 2016 campaign. This is fact. This is reality. Bozell and the Red Hat Entertainment Complex are in the process of circulating a Mad Lib-style bit of propaganda that goes kind of like this. We hired Donald Trump to fire people like fill-in-the-blank. The other day during the testimony of Marie Yovanovitch, Donald Trump Jr. tweeted this version, quote, America hired real Donald Trump to fire people like the first three witnesses we've seen, unquote. There are literally thousands of other examples. Origins aside, Bozell tweeted yet another counterfactual chunk of gibberish because the Red Hats, the 40 percenters, will believe anything they're told by both Trump and Trump's co-conspirators. The decades-long brainwashing by Fox News and talk radio has tenderized their brains enough to be fully receptive to whatever their cult leaders tell them, no matter how screwy. Bozell later deleted the tweet, by the way, but not after it orbited the globe for a few hours. But this isn't about Bozell. This is about reality and Trump's permanent divorce from it. Throughout the day, Trump and his soulless goons on the House Intelligence Committee continued to inject lies into an otherwise serious constitutional investigation on the record and staring directly into television cameras. 
We heard the Republican counsel Steve Castor maneuvering around the word Barisma, suggesting that the name of the energy company had nothing to do with the names Hunter Biden and Joe Biden. In other words, they wanted us to believe that Trump's efforts to extort Ukraine's President Zelensky to reopen an investigation into Barisma had nothing to do with Trump wanting Zelensky to investigate Biden, who remains the Democratic frontrunner. Not only has Trump confessed that he wanted Zelensky to investigate the Bidens, but Rudy Giuliani confessed to the same thing. When he's not accidentally confessing to people, Trump speaks in coded language, as verified by Michael Cohen earlier this year. It's what criminals do. And Burisma is Trumper code for investigating Biden. The Republicans and Trump himself also gravitated to a particular answer by Sondland in the context of a phone call between Trump and Sondland on September 9. Bill Taylor texted to Sondland, quote, As I said on the phone, I think it's crazy to withhold security clearance for help with a political campaign, unquote. Sondland, shortly after receiving this text message, spoke with Trump, who, according to Sondland, told the ambassador, I want nothing. I want no quid pro quo. But these instructions by the president clearly weren't denials. They were marching orders, a cover-up of what was actually going on. Trump was telling Sondland not to use quid pro quo and not to tell anyone what Trump wants, even though everyone knew what Trump wanted. And how do we know that everyone knew? Sondland said so. Everyone was in the loop. It was no secret, Sondland told the world on Wednesday, one of several bombshell moments in his testimony, further proving Trump was engaged in extortion and bribery despite his orders not to use the words quid pro quo. Sondland confirmed there was, in fact, a quid pro quo. During his opening statement, Sondland said, quote, I know that members of this committee have frequently framed these complicated issues in the form of a simple question. Was there a quid pro quo? Sondland began. With regard to the requested White House call and White House meeting, the answer is yes, unquote. On top of all that, Adam Schiff and Sondland had this exchange during questioning. Schiff, you testified that that meeting was conditioned as a quid pro quo for the two investigations the president wanted. Is that right? Sondland, correct. Schiff, and that everybody knew it. Sondland, correct. And the president was directly involved. The following phrases were commonplace in Sondland's testimony. Quote, at the express direction of the president of the United States. Quote, I follow the directions of the president. Quote, based on the president's direction. And, quote, the president directed us to do so. Nevertheless, you can expect Trump and the Red Hat cult to repeat the phrase, I want nothing, until it loses all meaning, not unlike no collusion and no obstruction. It's Trump's last foothold, but the rock face is cracking under his dainty feet. During testimony later in the day, Devin Nunes returned to what he and Trump call, quote, the Russian hoax. Let it be known that the hoax in Trump world involves the entire attack. Nunes looked directly into the camera on Wednesday and said it was actually Ukraine that attacked Trump during the election. They want their people to believe Russia didn't attack the United States at all, that it was Ukraine instead, despite having zero proof of anything. And as we know from testimony by Rick Gates and others, this Ukraine theory emerged from Russia and one of its military intelligence operatives, Konstantin Kalimnik. This might be the biggest lie of them all, a whopper massive enough to crush all other whoppers. Ultimately, they thought Gordon Sondland was planning to go along with them on their crusade of corruption and disinformation. They were wrong. Instead, the walls of the trash compactor continue to crush Trump's presidency, and all they have left is all they started with, rank deception that depends entirely on a compliant red hat audience. But the lies are growing more flimsy and isolated by the day, while the truth is leading even men like Ken Starr to wonder when Republican leadership will finally pull the plug on Trump's corrupt regime. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thank you, Bob. Get more of Mr. Seska at Salon.com, his Patreon page, and Tuesdays and Thursdays on The Bob Seska Show at BobSeska.com. He'll have a fresh show this afternoon. I join Bob on his Tuesday shows. There is one other whistleblower that many have by now forgotten. 
It's the whistleblower inside the IRS who alleges that a Trump political appointee meddled in the routine audits of the president and vice president. And over in the Republican-led Senate, that's being investigated by staffers for Republican Senators Chuck Grassley of Iowa and Oregon's Ron Wyden. They may simply be investigating the credibility of the IRS whistleblower, but they would have likely found more than that. A career IRS official filed their complaint back in July, but in recent weeks, this same whistleblower has filed additional documents. And those additions kicked the Senate staffers' investigation into high gear. Those who speak for Senator Grassley and Wyden won't say whether the two lawmakers have met with that whistleblower, whose identity is being protected. Simultaneous to that news on Monday, the Supreme Court temporarily blocked the ruling that ordered Trump's accounting firm to provide his tax returns to Congress. It was Trump who took his case to the high court, claiming he's shielded from congressional investigations by his presidential powers for as long as he has them. Lower court judges have scoffed and scorned that idea in what is now a constitutional case, the judicial branch settling a battle royal between the executive and legislative branches of government. Democrats did not object to the delay. They were expecting this. Democrats agreed to the delay to give the justices time to consider the case. The Democrats said they would give their response tomorrow, on Friday. That's the same day the justices of the United States Supreme Court will meet privately to discuss the case. Tomorrow, Friday. Trump's also fighting efforts by the New York state prosecutors to see his tax returns. The Circuit Court of Appeals hasn't said yet whether it will hear his appeal or let lower court rulings stand. Rulings that said he has to turn over his taxes. In the federal case, the judge mocked the notion that a sitting president cannot even be investigated, much less prosecuted, for, say, shooting someone on Fifth Avenue. Now, you too can profit from influential foreign officials. The Trump Hotel in D.C., conveniently located within easy walking distance of the White House, is for sale. And although Trump, the Trump family, and the Trump organization have denied profiting from foreign governments with that hotel, they have now cleverly included that perk in the brochure for potential buyers of that hotel. Technically, the building and historic landmark post office is owned by the taxpayers, owned by the government. The Trump organization leases that building, turning it into a hotel that's hosted officials from Saudi Arabia and a string of other nations conveniently within easy walking distance of the White House. But it is the Trump organization that collects the visitors' money in what many have called a clear violation of the emoluments clause of the Constitution, which says no one in the federal government is allowed to profit because of their job. Foreign governments wishing the president to look favorably upon them can spend thousands and thousands of dollars there on guest rooms, meeting rooms, and catering. That hotel takes in about $40 million a year. The Trump Organization hasn't said why it's ditching the place, but the multiple emoluments lawsuits may have been a factor. The rest of the news, a chance of life on Jupiter, the cow, the camel, and the donkey in the final segment after this. Thanks to the giving, thanks for the giving, this is the best time of all to thank you for your wonderful support throughout the year and for so many years. As I say at the top and bottom of every show, thank you for listening. Thank you for your likes, shares, and retweets on social media. And a special thanks to those of you who make this free newscast possible by helping to cover the expense of servers, equipment, software, and subscription. To help this independent journalism effort at this important time in history, please click the PayPal Donate button on the upper right at buzzburbank.com or on your phone just below the title, Buzz Burbank News and Comment. And there's still an Amazon button on my page. If you're shopping Amazon for the holidays anyway, go through my page. Bookmark that. It still helps. Thank you so much to those of you who actively support this independent news. And happy Thanksgiving. And then there is the mysterious and alarming story on Trump and the two Koreas. While North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un fired 24 new missiles this year, Trump says he has no problem with that. Meanwhile, Trump's now demanding that our ally, South Korea, pay 500% more to the U.S. in 2020 if it hopes to keep U.S. troops and equipment there. Quoting an MIT professor on the Korean Peninsula, Nothing says I love you like a shakedown. 
quoting a South Korean official, are you guys mercenaries now? South Korean officials are outraged. The U.S. military is distressed. Military officials say they have been concerned about the president's policymaking being focused on the 2020 campaign and his battle against impeachment. And on Monday, the Trump administration reversed 41 years of U.S. policy, the U.S. no longer considering Israeli settlements on the West Bank to be in violation of international law. That announcement came from Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, who said the changes in U.S. policy on Israel and the Palestinians would increase the chances for peace. Most, however, say it will likely doom the efforts toward peace. This trend of greater favor for Israel and much, much less for Palestinians began in December of 2017 when Trump formally recognized Jerusalem as Israel's capital and ordered the U.S. Embassy to move there from Tel Aviv. In April, Trump officially recognized the contested Golan Heights as Israeli territory. And this happened. Trump pardoned three members of the U.S. military who'd either been accused or convicted of war crimes. In so doing, Trump undermined the code of military justice to exonerate three men considered heroes by some of Trump's base, including conservative lawmakers and Fox News. Back in October, Trump tweeted, we train our boys to be killing machines, then prosecute them when they kill. Former Army Lieutenant Colonel Clint Lawrence will now be freed from Fort Leavenworth Penitentiary, where he'd been sentenced to serve 19 years for killing two civilians. He was accused of ordering his troops to fire on unarmed villagers and radioed false reports to cover it up. Army Special Forces Major Matt Goldstein was also pardoned even before he faced trial for killing an unarmed Afghan civilian. That preemptive pardon appears to be a first. And Trump, as commander-in-chief, reversed the demotion of Chief Petty Officer Ed Gallagher. Gallagher was accused of shooting civilians in Iraq, killing an enemy fighter with a hunting knife, and threatening to kill his fellow SEALs if they reported him. He was also photographed posing next to one of his kills. Trump granted these pardons over the firm objections of his military commanders, including the defense secretary and the secretary of the army, apparently to appeal to his conservative base. As military officials had feared, making decisions based on the 2020 election and to shore up his army of supporters as he faces impeachment. Gallagher now faces a hearing in which he will likely lose his standing as a Navy SEAL, despite Trump's pardon. At least that was the plan this morning. In a tweet, Trump overruled the Navy's decision to remove from the SEALs Mr. Gallagher. This week's gun massacres occurred at a high school in Santa Clarita, California, and at a backyard party, a football watching party in Fresno. Four dead in Fresno, six wounded. Quoting a police official, thank God no kids were hurt. Two dead at Saugus High in Santa Clarita with three wounded, plus the shooter, who died the next day from a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. The high school shooter brought a gun in his backpack on his birthday and at 7.37 a.m. used it to shoot six people, counting himself. Deputies were on the scene within two minutes of the call, but the shooting was over in 16 seconds. It was at least the seventh school shooting of this academic year. Since the 1999 massacre at Columbine, 230,000 children have experienced gun violence at school. Nancy Pelosi over the weekend called on Mitch McConnell to, quote, listen to the will of the people and to pass the common sense gun violence prevention legislation that the House passed more than 260 days ago. Two jail workers in Manhattan were arrested on criminal charges for failing to check on Jeffrey Epstein the night he hanged himself. A grand jury found the two workers, one male, one female, conspired to defraud the United States by making false records about their failure to check a high-risk prisoner. They were supposed to have checked on Epstein every 30 minutes. Instead, he was unattended for hours while the two workers slept and cruised the Internet at their desks just 15 feet from the convicted sex abuser's cell. The charges are based on the Metropolitan Correctional Center's video security system, which also reveals that no one else went into or came out of Epstein's cell throughout the night. Britain's Prince Andrew now says he will withdraw from public life after a disastrous TV interview in which he expressed no regret to the women and girls sexually abused by his late friend, Jeffrey Epstein. And while we're contemplating all these things down here, other things were happening up there. 
Water vapor has been detected on one of Jupiter's moons, raising new questions about life there. Europa is the first of Jupiter's moons to be visited by a vehicle from Earth when Voyager probed it 40 years ago. And now, for the first time, with one of the biggest telescopes in the world, the Keck Observatory in Hawaii, astronomers picked up the signal for water vapor, rising at over 5,000 pounds of water per second. That's the same amount of water that fills an Olympic-sized swimming pool per second. And if you look upward at about 10 till midnight tonight Eastern time, you may see as many as 100 meteors in a 15-minute burst. It's the Alpha Monocerotids meteor shower, which usually only has a few visible meteors. And unlike other meteor showers, this one goes by quickly. It won't be visible on the West Coast. Ford v. Ferrari zoomed into first place with a $31 million opening to lead the pack in this week's movie race. Charlie's Angels, meanwhile, sputtered off the starting line with a we-don't-care $8 million, but Midway wasn't much stronger. But the seats are about to fill up for Tom Hanks, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, Frozen 2, Star Wars, Rise of Skywalker, Bombshell, a movie about Roger Ailes, Richard Jewell, Dark Waters, The Report, and Honey Boy. In other words, the holiday movie season starts next week. For previews, theaters, showtimes, and tickets, please click the Fandango link at buzzburbank.com. More common than the Red Ryder BB gun is the bright red radio flyer wagon. And in Madison, Illinois, a company tricked out one with a motor and got that red flyer wagon up to 30 miles an hour. That's a world record, and it raised money for Shriners Hospital for Children. So a camel, a donkey, and a cow walk in to Goddard, Kansas. Goddard's about 15 miles west of Wichita. The camel, the donkey, and the cow were found walking together along a road. The Sedgwick County Sheriff's Office says the animals have now been returned to a nearby wildlife park. And finally, there was the report of a monkey on the loose in Blackpool, England this week. As it turns out, there were no monkeys on the loose. It was a drill by the local zoo. The monkey, spotted by a panicked member of the public, wasn't real. It was a stuffed toy monkey. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and your support to the donate button at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back in two weeks with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by The Realm Network.